warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as we begin today's show with a jolt from Japan. The Japanese central bank surprising investors by loosening the tight hold it keeps on longer term borrowing costs, allowing them to rise a touch. Now, it was a tweak and I emphasize that. But the broader belief is that it could signal a decision to start raising base rates, which, of course, have been negative for years, especially Of course, as other central banks around the world continue to hike interest rates and the policy gap between them and Japan continues to widen. The big question, of course, is, is the era of cheap money in Japan finally over? Not, according to the Bank of Japan chief today. It is significant, though, that Chief Kuroda is stepping down in the spring. And again, the uh, talk today is that today's move could allow the new Bank of Japan head to come in with a clean slate and perform some kind of policy pivot early on next year. For now, though, the yen is surging against major currencies, currently up more than three and a half percent, as you can see there, or just under now, against the US dollar. Context, of course, is key. The yen is rising from ultra, ultra low levels and is still down some 16 percent against the US dollar this year. Now, as you would expect, with moves like this in the currency, Japanese stocks also under pressure. The Nikkei tumbling some two percent, as you can see, around two and a half percent there. Banking, one of the few sectors actually moving higher in Tokyo, though, rising yields will ultimately help their profitability. Global bond yields, including the US dollar, moving higher as well, though the impact on US and European equity markets far less severe. US futures a bit softer, Europe pulling back during the session too. But this has been an extremely challenging month for global equities, bucking the usual holiday trend. The S&P 500 in particular has fallen for four straight days, losing more than 6% so far this month. Lots of sad Santas perhaps then roaming around trading floors, except perhaps in Buenos Aires, where nothing will stem the joy today as the World Cup winning footy team, the White and Blue Sky is given a hero's welcome in just under an hour. A victory parade will begin in the Argentine capital. Tens of thousands. Wow. I mean, it looks like more than that. Fans have been gathering through the night after the squad arrived in the early hours of the morning to what could only be called a rock star reception. We just hope the team have been able to get some sleep. They have, if this post by Lionel Messi is anything to go by. Take a look at that. He's even sleeping with that World Cup trophy. Stefano Posibon is in Buenos Aires where the excitement is reaching fever pitch. No pun intended. Stefano, I'm sure you can barely even hear me with the noise that we can hear behind you. Just describe the scenes there. Incredible. Absolutely, Julia. Yes, I was just about to tell you that. Uh, please speak as loud Shout. as you can because here we are nine <laughs> floors above the 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 avenue, the avenue, the 9th of July Avenue, and the sound from the tens of thousands of Argentinian fans that have been hitting the streets since the early hours of today to give their heroes a hero's welcome 
as they come back uh, from uh, Qatar uh, has been mountain and mountain. It's something that, uh, honestly, Julia, I have not uh, experienced uh, anywhere before. It's uh, three days uh, of uh, collective celebration that these uh, country has gone through since uh, Sunday. It's been more than three decades since Argentina were on top of the world uh, in world football and it does make sense that uh, the people here are intended to party as hard as they can. In terms of what are to expect it today, um, the national football team and Lionel Messi will arrive on a open bus uh, carrying the trophy from the big avenue that is just behind my back. This is the 9th of July Avenue. It's a wide nine-lane uh, artery that crosses uh, through the heart of uh, Buenos Aires and it's already absolutely packed. Um, and uh, the team will then do a roundabout or attempt to do a roundabout around the obelisk and from there to head to the presidential palace where they were meant to meet uh, presidential, President Alberto, Fernan uh, Alberto Fernandez. Uh, so really it's the culmination of uh, three days of national celebration and today by the way is a national holiday here in Argentina just to celebrate uh, the World Cup victory Julia. Yes and everyone's as we can see there in the 9th of July Avenue uh, crowding in how on earth is the bus even going to get through that? That, that is uh, a question that, uh, that I'm asking myself <laughs> and we will powers. be here to film <laughs> as, the, as, the, as the bus uh, will, try, will try to attempt. Uh, we were here, we were down on the ground on, uh, on Sunday and the scenes were really something we had never seen uh, before. It's, uh, well, they will, one way or another, they will make it through. They made it through Qatar after losing the first game, uh, the first match against Saudi Arabia, but then collecting six victories in a row, and they made it through the penalties against France. So perhaps some crowd control and make it through the crowd will be possible for these <laughs> ever-conquering Argentinian team, Julia. Yes, good luck with that. I think something tells me it's going to take them far longer than they planned. Um, Stefano, we'll be back later on in the show yes. with you, but for now I'm going to let you go. Stefano Pozzovon there, basking in the glow of happiness in Buenos Aires. And stay right here with CNN. We'll have much more live coverage of Argentina's World Cup victory parade in Buenos Aires next hour too. Let's move on for now. And the crypto court chaos isn't over for Sam Bankman-Fried just yet. The former FTX CEO is expected back in court in the Bahamas today at a hearing on Monday. We're told that Bankman-Fried agreed to be extradited to the United States. But proceedings did descend into confusion as prosecutors and Bankman-Fried's Bahamian lawyer argued in court. CNN's Patrick Ottman joins us now from the Bahamas. What on earth happened yesterday, Patrick? Because I do believe we were thinking it would all be signed and sealed and the extradition process would, would crack on. And today we've got another court hearing and no real clarity, I think, on, on when actually his journey to the United States will take place. What happened and what can you tell us? Well, well to put it simply, there was just a lot of drama in, in the Bahamas. And yes, there's supposed to be a, a court hearing uh, today, but I've gone inside the court and they have no uh, information to give us at this point that uh, we don't see a heavy police presence like we saw yesterday when they brought in SBF, as, as he's known, Sam Bankman freed. So uh, we're all waiting to see what's happening. There is a huge disconnect, obviously, between his U.S. legal team, uh, uh, which is running the show, but his Bahamian legal team, which is the only uh, 
attorneys that have any say when it comes to the Bahamas. So uh, there has obviously been some egos bruised. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of pressure from the U.S. government on the Bahamian government to get this done as soon as possible. Uh, but his uh, Bahamian attorney yesterday dug in and said that until he is ready, until he's had the opportunity to advise his client, until he's seen all the paperwork that he needs to see, uh, he is not going to permit uh, this extradition to go forward. Yesterday afternoon, there seemed to be some relenting from his Bahamian defense team saying that, yes, having talked to Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, that he had agreed to be extradited. So you would think, you would think uh, that there would be some movement at the courthouse uh, where a hearing would take place that would allow his extradition to move forward. That could happen as soon as today. We were told late last night, but at this point, uh, there's just very little movement here. Obviously, a lot of pieces still being worked out behind the scene, but it really is surprisingly chaotic. And of course, for the many, many people who invested in FTX, who lost their life savings, uh, lost money that they needed for car payments or rent, you know, those people want answers. They want to know where their money is, and we are no closer to those answers as of right now. Yeah, to your point, an incredibly high-profile detainee. So um, a lot of focus on this person. They want to get this right. Um, Patrick, we shall see what today brings. Patrick Altman there covering the, as you said, dramas in the Bahamas. Thank you for that. Okay, investors were expecting a snooze fest at the Bank of Japan's end of year policy meeting on Tuesday. What they got, though, was a pretty sizable wake up call that could reverberate through global markets for years and pave the way for the first Bank of Japan rate hike in well over a decade. Paul and Monica joins us now. Steady on, I think, with that first uh, rate hike in over a decade. I think you have to explain what's going on because traditionally the Bank of Japan have kept an incredibly tight control over where borrowing costs, particularly longer term borrowing costs, have held. They eased that slightly, but they also announced more bond buying too. So easing one thing, trying to control something else. They have a job, Paul. It's going to be very difficult, Julia. You're right. I think that the Bank of Japan is trying to show global markets that they are still in a more easing sort of mode with regards to monetary policy compared to the rest of the world, obviously the Fed, ECB, Bank of England. But this step to widen the band for uh, bonds is definitely something that is reverberating around the world because I think investors are rightfully interpreting this as a precursor for an eventual rate hike. And that's why you are seeing the U.S. dollar take a hit today as the yen has strengthened. You've got U.S. bond yields rising along with Japanese bond yields as well. So this would just be another example of the tightening that is taking place around the world in response to inflation. Japan clearly behind every other major central bank. Now they're trying to catch up. It's significantly behind, of course. As I mentioned in the introduction to the show, they've got negative uh, central bank base rates and they've stayed there while all other central banks, and you mentioned a number of the really important ones, have continued to hike interest rates to combat inflation. And it's had a material impact on the relative strength of the yen. I mean, I, they're still down, what, 16% relative to the US dollar, the Japanese currency. And, and that has an impact on inflation because you effectively import inflation because everything you buy is getting more and more expensive. A kind of decision had to come, I think, to the point you're making, Paul. Yeah, I think that the Bank of Japan realizes that for the sake of 
Chinese, I'm sorry, excuse me, Japanese consumers, as well as major Japanese conglomerates, you know, many of whom do business in the United States, it makes sense to do these moves in order to strengthen the yen, which has been uh, floundering against the U.S. dollar for years. So dollar strength was a big part of the global market story in 2022. Are we now all of a sudden going to see dollar weakness in 2023 versus currencies like the yen, even though the Fed is not done raising interest rates just yet? Jerome Powell obviously suggesting that more tightening probably to come in early 2023 before they pivot to a pause. Yes. 2023 going to be equally interesting, I think, as uh, 2022 for uh, monetary policy or ongoing monetary policy decisions. And Paul, a little slip there, but you could have been looking at our rundown because we are headed to China next. So thank you for that too. Paul and Monica there, always helpful. China and their sudden abandonment of its zero COVID policy could come with a high price. A new study warning that nearly a million people could die from the disease as the country ends restrictions on movement and the health system is increasingly overwhelmed. Selena Wang has been looking into the details from Beijing. China's COVID policy has swung from one extreme to another, and many people here have been caught off guard by this sudden shift from harsh lockdowns over a few COVID cases to now letting the virus rapidly spread. In the major city of Chongqing, which was under mass COVID lockdown last month, well, that city is now telling people that even if they have COVID and are sick, as long as they're only mildly sick, well, they can go back to work as normal. This is a dramatic, unexpected U-turn that health experts say the health system is not prepared for after three years of harsh lockdowns and mass testing. And we're already seeing hospitals under strain in major cities. Hospitals have said they're dealing with outbreaks among staff. Long lines like these are forming outside of hospitals in big cities, like these videos from Hangzhou and Wuhan. Now, China has only announced a few COVID deaths since reopening, but what we see on the ground points to a different story. I went to a major crematorium in Beijing, and you can see the long lines of cars waiting to get to that cremation area. The parking lot was full as well, and several people there told me their loved ones had died from COVID, and an employee said they're swamped with dead bodies. The stores nearby selling funerary items said they're much busier than normal. Now, a new study from Hong Kong researchers says that China's sudden exit from its zero COVID policy could lead to nearly one million deaths. But the report does say that one million people dying of COVID in China is a worst case scenario if China doesn't take extra precautions. It says if China can successfully boost the vaccination rate, use antiviral treatments and take other public health measures, it could reduce the deaths by hundreds of thousands. U.S. State Department spokesman Ned Price said the toll of COVID-19 in China is of concern to the rest of the world, given the size of China's GDP and its economy. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a cap on tap. Europe's latest move to tackle high energy prices, plus perfect or just pricey. The CEO of artificial Christmas tree retailer Bolson Brands coming up next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has visited the frontline city of Bakhmut, where a brutal battle for control has dragged on now for months. It comes as Russia's President Putin admits the situation in parts of Ukraine claimed by Russia is, as he puts it, quote, extremely complicated. I think we can call that an understatement. And in that vein, remember Snake Island. Early in the war, the island became a symbol of Ukrainian defiance, as well as a key outpost in the Black Sea. Well, in this exclusive report, Will Ripley takes us to the island for the very first time. As the saying goes, whoever controls Snake Island controls the Black Sea. The safest way to get there? The Ukrainian military's inflatable speedboat. With seating for six, it's small enough to stay out of sight. We are really getting tossed around out here, but we need to take a small boat because we need to stay out of the sights of Russian reconnaissance aircraft. Safer than a helicopter, but no protection from the Black Sea's big waves, bitter cold and whipping winds, not to mention the mines. By the end of our stomach-turning journey, Snake Island's craggy cliffs are a welcome sight. Up close, a pier in pieces previews the destruction we're about to see. We enter Snake Island by climbing up a pile of half-sunken, slippery sea blocks. We're the first journalists allowed here since Ukraine recaptured Snake Island five months ago. Russia blanketed the island with booby traps before bailing out. The soldiers told us we need to follow in their footsteps exactly, and we need to be very careful where we step. This whole island is littered with landmines, unexploded ordnance, basically a powder keg. A powder keg with plenty of cats wandering through the wreckage of 10 brutal months of war. Not a snake in sight. On February 24th, the first day of Russia's full-scale invasion, Russia's Black Sea flagship, the Moskva, aimed its arsenal at Snake Island, demanding dozens of Ukrainian defenders surrender or die. What happened next is how legends are made. Five words, seen at the time as a final act of defiance. Everyone on Snake Island presumed dead. Russian bombs raining down, the island's radio went silent. Those five words telling the Russian warship where to go. Instantly iconic, inspiring t-shirts, postage stamps, pop songs. Ukraine later learned Snake Island's defenders were alive, prisoners of war. Some released in a POW swap earlier this year, others remain in Russian captivity. Is it intimidating to look out and see a giant Russian warship and know that you guys are a small group here? If anybody tells you it's not intimidating, he's a liar, says Fortuna, a volunteer soldier. It was chaos. The garrison here was small. Russia captured the island quickly. Taking the island back took a long time. On Snake Island, we find a graveyard of Russian weapons, the result of relentless Ukrainian attacks for several months earlier this year. This is one of Russia's most expensive anti-aircraft weapon systems. As you can see, not much use anymore. In April, Ukraine says its missiles sank the Moskva. Where did it go? The bottom of the Black Sea. A humiliated Kremlin says their flagship caught fire, sinking in stormy weather. 
In May, a Ukrainian drone strike on Snake Island turned this helicopter into a fireball. This is what's left of that Russian helicopter, pulverized along with its crew of about eight people. A twisted relic of Russia's ill-fated plan to transform this remote Black Sea outpost into a permanent aircraft carrier. What's it like to live out here? We need to be on guard 24-7, Fortuna says, so we never get bored. We notice his Russian accent. Turns out Fortuna was born in Russia. He moved to Ukraine and got married before the war. Now part of a Russian volunteer corps protecting Snake Island for Ukraine. How do you feel about Russia now? For us, they're enemies, no matter what. Most of the Russian volunteer corps lived in Ukraine before the invasion, he says. We were living life, had families, good jobs, and here comes Russia attacking us. If some other country attacked us, we would fight too. Life on Snake Island means almost total isolation. Soldiers tell me the simple act of switching on a cell phone brings Russian rockets within 40 minutes. They say Russia attacked the island just last month. We are now out of time. We've been on the island just about an hour, and it's important that we get off before the waves get too big and before the Russians know we're here. The Ukrainians say Russia blew up Snake Island's historic lighthouse and museum on the site of an ancient Greek temple. Evil spirits are rumored to roam these 46 acres of rock and sand, bearing witness to centuries of bloodshed. Ukraine is not the first nation to control Snake Island, but vows it will be the last. Will Ripley, CNN, on Snake Island, Ukraine. Welcome back to First Move. And a cap on natural gas prices finally agreed. The European Union has decided to impose a cap if the price of gas one month in the future exceeds around $190 per megawatt hour for three consecutive working days. Prices must also be at least $37 higher than the global prices for LNG, or better known as liquefied natural gas. And once triggered, it will remain active for at least 20 days. Moscow calling the deal unacceptable. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Wow, Claire, our poor viewers today between uh, the moves in Japan and now uh, gas price caps for the EU. Just talk us through the details of this. Obviously, I've translated to dollars here, but obviously it's a, it's a euro number. Walk us through how these caps are set to work. And can you give me a sense of what would have happened had these caps been in place this year? Well, I mean, we've seen all the turmoil in the gas market, Julia, over the summer. I think this cap at this level, which is much lower than EU members had previously been considering, would have been triggered. The way it works, they're calling it a market correction mechanism. So if uh, the prices go over the 180 euro, 190 dollar per megawatt hour level in the month ahead futures market, then the cap is triggered. So essentially transactions over that level will not be allowed. This is really the first time that we've seen a mechanism uh, like this even be attempted, though, as you say, it's not going to come into force uh, until February 15th. And in the meantime, regulators in Europe have to try to study the impact of this, because this is extremely controversial. There are major questions around what the impact of this could be. What could it do to market stability? Goldman Sachs out in a note this week, Julia, suggested it wouldn't even have to be triggered uh, for it to have an impact. Take a look at this. They say even if trigger conditions are not met, market tightening events that lift prices anywhere near the proposed cap are likely to cause preemptive action by market participants 
potentially leading to all of the negative cap effects. They're suggesting, for example, that traders could liquidate short positions or even stop selling altogether. This could really affect the market. And there are also concerns around supply. Will this send suppliers elsewhere where they can get a price higher than the cap? This is something that Germany has been concerned at all along. And will capping the price actually incentivize demand at a time when Europe is supposed to be doing the opposite. Clearly, it was a big achievement to get a political agreement on this after months of talks, but there are concerns that it does not fix the core issues at stake in the European energy crisis, which is that as of the spring, they're going to have to start refilling storage without most of their Russian gas supplies. Yeah, all hugely important questions. Thank you. Claire Sebastian there. Let's talk this through and for more on this and more. EU Commissioner for the Economy, Paolo Gentiloni, joins us now. He's also, of course, a former Prime Minister of Italy. Commissioner, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, That's exactly where I would like to start. And I'm sure you were just listening to Claire speak there as well. A price cap agreed significantly lower than what the European Commission initially proposed. And there's clearly concerns that it's going to have uh, negative or adverse effects. Well, it was, uh, well, good morning. It was indeed a very long discussion, maybe Uh, seven, eight months. Uh, So my first reaction is that um, I am quite happy of the fact that uh, we reached an agreement um, because this is in itself a good message. Uh, There is a deal at the EU level. It will enter into force in mid-February. It is um, obviously much higher than the prices are now. But why are the prices now uh, lower than they were a few months ago? I think that this is not um, something coming from um, I don't know where. It is coming also from the decisions that are taken until now. Uh, First on uh, storage. We have an extraordinarily high level of storage now in Europe. And second on savings. So I think that this measure is a proportionate measure. It is not a silver bullet. So we should be, uh, I think, honest in saying that we need to continue on uh, savings and on independence from Russian fossil fuels. It's not with a cap that we solve all the problems. And, and all of this, of course, vitally important as the European economy overall slows and, and the concern about recession as we head through the winter. I think you've been pretty clear on that, that, that recession is likely over the winter months into next year. But the hope is that it will be short lived. And, and by the sort of middle of next year into the summer, hopefully uh, the European economy will be out of recession. Is that is that right? At least at this stage. Well, indeed, this is our estimate. We all know that uncertainty is now dominating. So estimates are um, frequently Tough. fragile. But, <laughs> yes. but our estimate is that we will have probably a contraction in winter, last quarter of this year, first quarter of next year, and then a very slow uh, uh, start of growth next year. Overall, we uh, estimate for next year a growth of 0.3%, so very, very low and faster in 24. But we can avoid to have a deep end 
long-lasting recession. I think this message should be very clear. It is also policy independent. Uh, of course, it depends on our decisions. You've said that you think a European response to helping European nations manage some of the consequences and the higher costs and support their citizens is required. I think on average nations in the uh, the EU spent around, what, 1.3% of, of GDP supporting their citizens and providing support. In 2023, perhaps even more of that, more than that will be needed. And obviously, some countries have more wiggle room and more capacity to provide support than others. What does a European response look like? And does it mean perhaps easier access to the money that was set aside to support with, with the fallout from the pandemic? Well, of course, the reactions of um, European um, member states was inevitable. We we all know that the consequences of the Russian aggression for Europe are not only geopolitical, they are very clearly economic. And uh, it was inevitable for member states to shield their citizens from energy uh, increase. But uh, we are suggesting everyone to make as possible if as as far as possible these measures targeted especially to vulnerable households and of course we need common tools because the um, po- the pockets are not equal among european member states and we can't accept the idea that uh, deep pocket member states will react uh, with a strong firepower and the other will be uh, lagging behind. So we need again, as was the case for the uh, response to the pandemic, common European tools. And this is now the big discussion going on in Europe. But I'm quite optimistic that we will have these common tools in place for the first quarter of next year. Vitally important discussion, as you say, taking place. I think one of the biggest concerns out there, and it 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 ties back to the discussion that we were having about the gas price caps, is what happens in winter of of 2023. And obviously, to your point, great uncertainty over the situation in Ukraine and and what happens in that regard, but also the challenge of not having Russian energy available to increase storage for winter 2023. And particularly, as was just being discussed by Claire, the risk that if these oil price caps come into play, people look to sell their their gas to other nations where those caps don't apply. Is the, the real concern what happens in Europe come winter 2023 and that it could be even worse than what we've seen this winter? It could be a, a, a challenge, of course. Mm. Um, on the optimist side, I would say uh, first that our dependency from uh, Russian fossil, fossil fuels decreased in a quite impressive way. Uh, we were 40% dependent, I mean the EU overall, from Russian fossil fuels. We are now 7 so the dependency decreased from 40% to 7%. So the problem is now much lower than it was a few months ago. 
At the same time, of course, we have to keep the needs on all our measures to give a price signal in favor of the green transition and the renewables. We should avoid that when we decide a price cap for gas, we send the message that uh, the future is gas. The gas is a transition. The future is incentivizing renewables and diversifying from Russia our providers. Are we working on this direction? Yes, we are. But this doesn't mean that next year is not a real challenge. Next winter. And to your point, that transition at this stage can't happen um, soon enough. Um, I want to ask you about something else. And I want to talk to you about, to your point, about some of the more optimistic and um, progressive steps um, that have been taken in Europe as well. And that is to, to put into law the global minimum tax rules that were agreed, of course, by the G20 and many of the OECD nations, 137 of them, I believe. And Europe, the first region to do so. Talk to me about that and what the plan is for 2023 with the next stage of implementation. Well, uh, a great achievement. Mm. Uh, Proud of this. Uh, It was also a personal fight for me and uh, we had a lot (laughs) of... uh, a long journey in 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 the EU. Uh, we 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 need to overcome differences and vetoes, etc. But now I think it's important that the EU is the first uh, big global player to implement uh, this global agreement. I'm sure that we will be uh, then followed by other global players, including the US. And this is very important because, especially in these Um, times of uncertainty and economic difficulties, the message that we will be able uh, to have uh, increasing revenues around 150 billions at global level and that we will have more fairness in taxation, that we will not have the big multinational corporations looking for uh, countries and jurisdictions with lower level of taxation or even to tax heavens. This is also a political message, very strong political message. Now we have to follow uh, and to continue this uh, commitment. We have a second pillar of this taxation agreement, which is on what we call the reallocation of taxing rights. Uh, meaning that you pay taxes where your profits are Mm. and not where your headquarters are. But this is the next step. The first step, the minimal taxation for corporate multinational is done in Europe. And I hope that we will progress all over the world. And you've uh, thrown the gauntlet down to, to other nations, to your point. Um, Commissioner, I have about 30 seconds left, but I did want to ask you about the, the recent arrests and the concerns of a, a potential uh, payment scandal in, in the European Parliament. I know it's a separate body, but for, for EU citizens watching this, what can you say to them to convince them that all investigations will be, will be fairly carried out and, and this will be prevented if indeed it's true in in future? Well, it's a shame. Uh, To prevent such a shame, I think we have to uh, increase our transparency. We have to recognize the fact that Brussels is 
maybe after Washington, the biggest uh, concentration of uh, lobbyism, uh, global, economic, international lobbyism. And you need to have stricter rules to avoid this kind of things to be repeated. And I think the message should be very clear because the reputation of the European Parliament is mm. at stake. Thank you, sir. Greater transparency and um, rules, and those rules followed. Paolo Gentiloni, EU Commissioner for the Economy, sir, thank you so much for your time today and uh, you. happy holidays. Take care. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, still to come here on First Move. Deck the halls with boughs of holly that our families la 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 ing around a real or an artificial tree, forgive my singing. The CEO of Poetry and more retailer, Bolson Brands, up next. Welcome back to First Move. For millions around the world, Christmas now is just a five days away. And for many, an age-old question comes up year after year. Do we get a real or do we get a fake tree? Last year, the American Christmas Tree Association estimated the market for artificial trees at between $1 to $2 billion annually. And in 2020, 81% of U.S. households bought fake. Well, our next guest plays into that trend. Balsam Hills sells high-end artificial Christmas trees. The company began looking to fill the gap for realistic-looking trees and then expanded into home decor for Christmas and other seasons. And joining us now is Mac Harmon, founder and CEO of Balsam Hill. Mac, fantastic to have you on the show. I think for most people, and obviously all the Americans for the most part are on board with the artificial tree, is that they are far more expensive, at least up front, than an ordinary tree. What's the appeal and what keeps people coming back? Well, good morning. I think really what brings people to artificial trees, for most people, it's just the convenience. I grew up with real trees. I love the scent and the experience of a real tree, but it's kind of got a lot of work to it. You've got to bring it in, cut the trunk off. It's got sap. The needles fall off. You need to water it. And then you have to string the lights on yourself. With an artificial tree, all that's done for you. The lights are pre-lit on the tree, our Balsam Hill trees. We very carefully do that tedious work of wiring the lights on. And then you don't have that maintenance. The other thing that's really driving it is that at least in the U.S., and it's different internationally, but in America, we like to put our trees up early, maybe Thanksgiving weekend or even before, and take them down after New Year's. And a fresh-grown tree really should only stay in your house for about four weeks before it can dry out and become a fire hazard. And so that trend of decorating for longer has led into artificial trees in the North American market. Yeah, that actually, that makes sense. It's the length of time, isn't it, in particular? I have to be, and full disclosure, I'm 10 years in. I bought one of your trees 10 years in. Um, I took custody of it once Thank in a breakup, you. and it's still going 10 years later, which is great for me, and it's a pre-lit one. Less bad for you. How long do you expect them to, to live for? And don't you want people to be sort of buying them perhaps more often than once every 10 years? I, I'm still cute. I'm still going. Well, you know, it's funny. This is our 17th season at Balsam Hill. And so we still have lots of trees from our very first season 17 yeah, years ago that are out in circulation. And it is it is a concern for us about, you know, how long they last. We expect them to last 20 plus years. What we're seeing, though, is that more and more people are decorating with multiple trees. 
And so it's interesting because I actually started this business as a side project. I didn't intend to be here 17 years later. I would have thought, geez, this is, you know, these, how many people need more than one tree and they last such a long time. But we do see people come back and buy new trees, but it's often adding a tree, having a second one, having one in their foyer. So it's, it's still been a good market for us and uh, we'll do our best to keep the growth going. I was about to say, and I also read as well when I was researching for this that the carbon footprint apparently of a plastic tree is around 10 times greater than that of a real tree. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but once you've gone beyond the 10 year point, then I think on that point um, you're winning as well. Where are the growth opportunities for you? Is it internationally given, um, as we said, Americans are clearly on board and if people are buying more than one tree, that helps too. But what about internationally? Because it's tougher to get one internationally, though I admit I have done that too. <laughs> Yes. I think for for Balsam Hill, international markets have been a great source of growth for us over the last five years. We have local language websites in France and Germany in the UK and Australia. And those have all been really strong markets up until this year. So that's where we've seen more aggressive growth. But we're still growing well in North America. And some of that, I think, is growing share away from other retailers. We're kind of the main specialty player for artificial trees. But I do think this trend, it's not so much people giving up real trees. It's people celebrating Christmas with more trees. And actually, (laughs) we're also seeing, I think, 6% of U.S. households now have both artificial and farm-grown trees in their home. And so people are putting up that artificial tree to kind of have the holiday cheer longer. And then they're bringing in the real tree uh, maybe in their family room or something like that. And they're putting up for a shorter period of time. But people are right now decorating with more trees, more wreaths, more garlands. And that's been a good trend for Balsam Hill. Yeah, and they are truly very beautiful. And people, as you say, are still buying it even as um, prices rise as well. Mac, happy holidays. Thank you so much for what you're doing. It may have been a side project, but they are pretty magnificent. More trees we like the founder and the CEO of Balsam Hill. Thank you, sir. All right, Christmas, though, has come early in Argentina. The buses have started to roll for the victory parade for the World Cup champions. We are live, back live in Buenos Aires after a quick break. And there's the bus. And I think I can see Messi. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Hooray! Football's coming home to Argentina, of course. The victory parade is now well underway in the Argentine capital. As you can see, it's promising to be the party of all parties. I can't even tell you, even guesstimate how many people there have already lined the streets and that avenue there to celebrate their returning players. If we can get a close-up on the boss, and you'll see it in a second, there are five players. I think Messi's sitting in the middle One of those next to him is actually holding the World Cup trophy, but you need really good eyesight to see that right now. Let's return to Stefano Apozzovan, who's in the Argentine capital for us. We said it was going to be tough to get through those crowds. This is going to be a slow parade. I can see people surging now towards the bus. Wow. It's literally, Julia, it's a sea of people here on the (laughs) avenue, the 9th of July Avenue. It's literally nine late. It's one of the largest in South America. Definitely one of the largest. They're absolutely packed. You can tell they are around my back, around the obelisk, which is the symbol of the city, the symbol of Buenos Aires. It's just jammed. And the bus is meant to do a roundabout, turning around the, um, the obelisk. So how they can get it done, um, it's, it's everyone's guess. Uh, thanks to our vantage point, 
going to catch that moment, uh, but truly it's a historic day for Argentina. And uh, by the way, it's a very loud day. We are nine floors uh, above the floor of the avenue and uh, the sound, the music of uh, these never-ending chants uh, of the supporters uh, is uh, just uh, deafening, Julia. Yeah, Stefano, and, and I apologize to our audience briefly, and I'm sure you can, um, you can hear me, but we're struggling to, to catch you, probably because there are so many people taking pictures, using their phones, calling, that it's interfering with the reception. But we were just looking at the bus there again, as you said, the crowds literally surging to meet their conquering and returning heroes. This is the 9th of July Avenue, as you were describing in the pictures that we're looking at, but we can see... Argentinian, Argentinian flags flying all over the place there. Hopefully we'll be able to get you another look at the bus that contains the players as they're being celebrated by um, all the supporters here that are in, the, in that avenue there. And it's working its way through as best it can. You actually can see the police and the security presence around them now just to, I'm assuming, try and provide some space even to let this bus pass. Um, we'll try and get you another shot if we can get any closer just to give you a sense of, of um, how the players... But what we were looking at just moments ago was them waving to the crowds. We had uh, Lionel Messi there sitting at the back of the bus in between a couple of others. So he was right in the centre there and, and holding... The person next to him was actually holding the World Cup trophy. So he's actually, despite sleeping with it last night, he's, uh, he's let someone else hold it. But as you can see now, I think we're just showing you again... Um, pictures of, of supporters. People simply just want to get closer if they possibly can uh, and get an image, I think, of this momentous occasion. A momentous occasion for the country, a momentous occasion for the team, of course, too, and not only uh, Lionel Messi himself with, with scoring that goal. Um, I think one can only imagine Congratulations if you are in Argentina at the moment and, and somewhere in this crowd welcoming your players home because these are incredible scenes. Tens, truly tens of thousands of people there waiting to celebrate them. And as I said earlier on the show, this is going to be a lengthy parade because good luck getting that bus through those happy crowds. A party to end all parties taking place in Argentina and here on the show. Oh, look, there's the bus. You can see it now on the right-hand side of your screen there. Yay, celebrations taking place. That's it for the show. Do not worry, though. We're going to bring you plenty more special coverage of those amazing celebrations in Argentina right after this. Stay with CNN. More to come. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.